Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, a podcast about dance and dunier mentories. I am your host, Tyler Hannon, with a actually accurate introduction to the podcast this time. And joining me, as always, from across a couple blocks, Kayla Say Notch. Hi. How's it going, Kayla? Oh, it's it's going. You yeah. know, uh, we're entering into month six of the global pandemic. It's going great. Um, we almost recorded this episode like outside, socially distant, but that was not my best idea as I did not realize that the mixing machine <laughs> has to be plugged into something. So Zoom it is again. I'm going to get a digital recorder, which will give us more versatility in our recording setup. But because, yeah, so I went overkill and got a mixer when I could have gotten a digital recorder. But then you also have to get a memory card and, you know, all this other stuff. It's very interesting audio content. Yeah, it turns out that you need a lot of gear to remote record. (laughs) It's not actually that. Well, whatever. Kayla, let's get into the movies. We're here to discuss two movies. Um, and as I, as referenced in the beginning, very subtly by me about dance and junior mentors. But today we're doing a double feature of The Fits and The Watermelon Woman, both of which are available to stream on the Criterion channel, thus the Criterion double feature. Yes, and this is something that we felt was important to do based on everything (laughs) happening right now um, to use the platform that we have to highlight the work of Black filmmakers and the artistry of Black actors and actresses. And these are two really great movies that we are really excited to talk about. And um, the first movie, The Fits, is something that I believe Tyler has actually brought up on our podcast before in a recently watched section because Tyler has been on this train for a while. So Tyler, why don't you start us off by going through the synopsis for The Fits? The Fits is the 2015 film written and directed by Anna Rose Homer. Uh, and we'll go into a quick-ish synopsis here, so spoilers away and such. In The Fits, uh, 11-year-old Tony trains with her older brother at a boxing gym. Tony is tough and she has a great relationship with her brother, but she seems very lonely and out of place uh, with all the these older boys that also trained in the boxing gym and we'll get into it but the movie also uses the soundtrack quite a bit to really isolate her like put a pin in her loneliness she becomes enamored with this dance team training in the same facility through her eyes we see their camaraderie and friendship their colorful costumes and the competitive success and we can see that she's clearly entranced by this tony joins the team befriending two more out Two more outgoing fellow newbies, BZ and Maya. Tony struggles with the choreography, but she, we see her improve throughout the film as she continues practicing and training on her own. And we see that she's doing better and flourishing with these newfound friends and passion. The older girls in the troupe start suffering from these seizures, the fits. The cause is undetermined. We see these hints at investigations throughout through Tony's perspective, offering uh, the very few glimpses we get of adults throughout the movie. The girls start to assume they will all go through this process. Those who have had the fits joke about them and the different forms that they take, but Tony grows more and more scared as Maya and then BZ also have their own spells. Tony, lashing out because of this fear, pushes away her friends and her brother, pretty literally, and after skipping practice and spending some time alone, Tony returns to the gym at the climax of the film. She starts to float as she walks, just literally walking on air. And then in front of a, 
shocked crowd of the of her the dance troupe she floats in spasm in midair and as this is happening we see visions of the dance troupe including tony performing in the various settings we've seen throughout the film the, the swimming pool the gym and other places tony then falls to the floor where her teammates catch her and then we end on a close-up of tony where she smiles roll credits uh, and as you mentioned, Kayla, I've like I've loved this film for a while. Um, something I think last year, the Michigan Theater did a or the State Theater, you know, the whole entity, did a partnership with Oscilloscope, mm-hmm. which is you know a, a lease studio, whatever. They they did a partnership with Oscilloscope, in which they screened a couple of their movies, and I wasn't able to make it to nearly as many as I wanted to, but I made sure to see the fits and. Just because I knew I liked the movie, I wanted to see it again. And it worked just as well in a theater. It was a really cool thing that we were able to do once upon a time as go-to repertory screenings of films and theaters, you know? And yeah, it was a pleasure to rewatch it. Um, I was, I just, I'm a big fan of this movie. This very, it's a very short movie too, but I'm looking forward to diving into it a bit and, you know, using this podcast to make someone watch a movie I like. Yeah, uh, this movie is a refreshing 72 minutes long, (laughs) um, which felt like, I don't know, a lot of times when we're doing movies for this podcast, it's they're very long, they're very, um, especially the Criterion ones, more challenging. And this one touches on on some challenging themes, but overall, the mood of it is generally just like figuring shit out, I guess. And it is just really awesome to see a dense character study put into this short amount of time instead of it being like the sprawling two and a half hour thing mystery because it's like I don't know it's it's not really a mystery in in my opinion the fits that we see throughout the film are based on Anna Rose Holmer's interest in real life hysterical dancing it's called and it is one of those things throughout history that has happened in communities where usually young women, but you know, not always will start basically exhibiting what we would consider psychosomatic symptoms of seizures or mental breaks and whatnot. And I think that in this film, the fits are serving the purpose of showing that like these girls, like this is maybe all that they have as this dance troupe and they're under a tremendous amount of pressure to make it work. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure to train these new girls. And it's just a lot. And they are not necessarily acting out, but their bodies are literally telling them like, you need to chill. And it's just really interesting to see all of the girls go through this and how it starts out like deathly serious and then later becomes more of like a joke and something that some of them are kind of looking forward to having, you know, their time come to have their fit. They seem to like think it's funny that the adults are so concerned about it. One detail that really stuck out to me was when they start saying that it might be that the water is contaminated. And I think that we are from Michigan. We live in Michigan. And so the a film touching upon a community that may be subject to contaminated water, especially a majority black community, uh, is very poignant and probably a very real fear that a lot of them have at this point. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's It's visually very fascinating. I think that all of the choreography is incredible. My honestly, my main complaint is that there isn't more dancing, especially from uh, Royalty Hightower, who is the the star who plays Tony. Because to me, it's very clear that like she's a dancer before she's an actress, and um, which is true because the all of the girls are played by a dance troupe from uh, Cincinnati, where the film was shot, and. The thing with this film is that like for me at least even though it's very short but it it took me a minute to kind of settle into the tone of the film and to like arrive with the characters and I think that part of that is the knowledge that she is a great dancer in real life and like I think that the times when she is most captivating on screen are when she's able to dance so there's a scene on the bridge where she finally like the choreography clicks for her and she starts actually being able to dance and then the the ending scene where you know the troupe is dancing together in her 
vision or her dream. And like, those are the times when I'm like, yes, okay, I get it. I understand. And like, it's about the joy of movement and about coming into yourself and all this stuff. And it's like, I wanted a little bit more of that. And so I think that that's maybe where I would like to see the movie be a little bit longer, just so that you can kind of revel in that feeling a little bit more. That's, I mean, that's very true. And like, that's a fair thing to want. I do think that that kind of makes the movie more effective in what it is. And it's about this kind of like closed off lonely girl, like finding that, like finding that passion and finding something that she can feel at home in, you know? And I think it really comes across in like she, like in the actual dancing, Um, Homer talks about in interviews about how she's a very visual storyteller. And I think that comes across here, not only just how few lines there are, are, but I think visually, royalty high tower is does a really great job at like conveying what she's feeling by like not saying anything at all which i guess like i don't know feels like a thing we praise actors for a lot but it oh feels especially special here and then when she does find her way dancing it feels like such such huge moments like this ever since the first time i saw this in about the midpoint or whatever when you we see her practicing on that bridge where she used to practice like do steps with her brother as she's finding herself and like figuring out the routine and we hear like she has her own like very lonely like saxophone theme and then there's this sound that of the dance troupe of like the step it's like stepping and clapping Mm -hmm. but those two themes in a movie that doesn't have a ton of music start to merge together at in this moment as it's just a man I love that scene so much and I guess I just wanted to underline how well it worked like I probably because they're actual dancers and uh but how well just that progression works of her finding herself and i guess like that could be a negative thing like like you feel like you're missing something or you want more of that but i i really like how that reality is used to further this little character study Right. And plus, I think it it is a good thing to like kind of leave you wanting more at the end of a movie instead of being exhausted with it. And it's Um, part of why that final vision feels so triumphant. mm -hmm. Um, Just because like we that's when we do get to see them dancing and we see her having like we like we've seen her struggling and getting better at the dance. And then in these visions, we see like, I don't know, the the full achievement. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I like about the narrative of this film too, is that it kind of pulls off this like double finding yourself thing. So it would be really easy for them to just slot her into the dance team and then she becomes friends with them and then that's it. And that's the happy ending. But part of the process that she has to go through is that like, yeah, so she is a tomboy. She is very strong. She works out in a different way than these girls. So she's physically set apart from them and she is, you know, more masculine. Um, And so the scenes where she is piercing her own ears or, you know, talking with the other girls about like clothes and whatnot, like they, are she is trying to slot herself into their version of femininity to you know kind of chameleon herself into belonging in their group and i think that what makes the ending very triumphant is that like she realizes that she doesn't have to do that that she can be herself and be a part of this dance troupe and i think that the fear that she feels throughout the film of succumbing to the fits is kind of that anxiety of being afraid that to grow up you have to like lose a part of yourself and i think that that's a pretty uniquely like feminine thing because like when you're a young girl like there are so many rules placed upon you and as you get older it becomes clearer that there are more rules and more ways in which you have to exist in the world I loved when she just like takes out her earrings and is like, nah, and like scrapes off all of the nail polish and is like, nah, I can do this without any of these trappings. I can use my strength to dance. I can, you know, still be a part of this group and still be with my friends. And I think that instead of it being like a stress fit, like the rest of the girls, hers is more of an exorcism of all of this fear. And she kind of just like flails it out of herself wildly. And it feels different than all of the other ones. I mean, it feels like a moment of transcendence, like with some magical realism there. And uh, I mean, another thing that's always stuck with me is 
in those moments when she's trying, when she's practicing by herself and trying to improve the dance, um, it feels like there, there are two like jabs or punches in the choreography that they're learning. And I, man, I think they just do a great job of like, she's always behind and off, but like there are those moments where it's like, ah, she knows those parts mm-hmm. of the dance. And those always, it's just, it's a small thing and maybe I'm reading more into it, but it seems like that's what she's able to hook onto. And so even it feels even very believable how she's struggling with the dance because Mm -hmm. like, she's like, wait, punching. I know that. I remember that the steps and like the, the hand waving, like that's harder. She can't quite get that, but it's like always like the punching that kind of centers her. And then the steps where she worked out with her brother, where she learns it. I just more of that, like that just feels like more of her, like finding ways to like meld those identities together. Yeah. Um, and as somebody who not dance specifically, but I, when I was younger, tried to be in musical theater, learning choreography is fucking hard. Like, especially if you don't just like inherently have the mind for it. Like I do not, I'm terrible. <laughs> like, full stop. I have no rhythm, no dancing ability. And so I really related to like that feeling of like, I see this and I see how beautiful it is. And when they do it, it looks so easy. And then I go to try and mimic it and it's just gone. I think that it's so funny that my favorite piece of trivia was that they had to teach her how to look bad at dancing because she's like an innate dancer who's been training since childhood. And just you can almost see it in her eyes a little bit because I feel like she's straining so hard to hold herself off beat. And like, I think that that also kind of contributes to the performance though, because she's just so at odds with herself throughout most of the film. Right. That struggling comes across. It just comes off. Like she's actually struggling with being bad, but it looks like it's her struggling to be good. It feels like to these, my sister, my, my sisters did many years of dance. I did not, but so these, to these untrained eyes, you know, um, and that's, I guess, like another thing um, that I, like, so I, I like, I love the visual storytelling of the movie. I think it works really well. And I'm not surprised at all that I want Anna Rose Homer to have like more credits, but it makes a lot of sense that two of our main credits after this are a James Blake music video and an episode of the OA, which is like mm-hmm. big on movement. Um, but I, and full tangent there. Um, I think one of the reasons I hooked up onto this like pretty quickly the first time I saw it, low those many years ago, um, is the relationships and the, um, I guess like the childhood perspective that it has, where the adults aren't really present and there's more going on with her day, but it's all like it has that um, quality of memory where like these are the important moments, these are the mm-hmm. ones that stick with her. But the relationships she has with those other kids, um, include especially her brother, um, like as 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 a oldest sibling with three younger sisters, um, I think that was just like something I immediately grafted onto, and I it just feels very real. And I did not know this for years, but then finding out that the guy, the her brother Jermaine is played by Deshaun Minor who is also the guy who for the two weeks before filming was the one to teach her how to box. And so that's like a very real kind of relationship. So they're not literally brother and sister, but they possibly already had that. They built kind of like the beginning of that dynamic and just the way that they use him too, as like this, both like a major factor in her life, but also one who can be entirely absent from what's happening. Um, and just like, and the relationship she has with her friends, BZ is like maybe my favorite character. <laughs> um, just that, <laughs> that friend you have, who's the social butterfly who mm-hmm. can just seemingly do anything socially. And like, you can like, uh, there's a moment when Tony like literally pushes her away. Um, I just like, it, I try not to like just specifically quote moment, like, quote things from movies in part because I'm very bad at it, but there's just all these small character moments and that work are like when, uh, so Maya has had her fit. BZ is saying something to Tony and Tony pushes her away and BZ just stands up, brushes her off (laughs) herself off and says, I'll tell Maya you said hi. (laughs) (laughs) That beautiful friendship where like you could be a total dick, but your friends just like, I can see you're in a mood right now. Look, we'll get back. I feel like that's so indicative of how like childhood friendships are too, because it's, they're 
what like 10 childhood 11. friendships and also like our friendship you're just like okay, yes Tom. but like for sure but like <laughs> yes for sure but like when you're a kid you are like having all of these big emotions for the first time in your life and i think that it's a special kind of friend who can kind of just be like okay whatever i'm clearly ahead of you on the wavelength and we're gonna get there and i think that the three of them as a trio work really well as like different personalities because like you said bz is this really social uh exuberant girl tony is obviously very quiet and reserved. Maya falls somewhere kind of in the middle and I get the impression that she doesn't have a strong sense of herself and that she still is, you know, searching for what her identity is going to be. She's in the dance troupe because her sister is in the dance troupe and she is notably the one who, you know, after a while starts wanting to have a fit because she wants to, you know, she wants to be a part of the group. She wants to know how it feels and what happened. And I feel like that's also something that, happens with kids and especially with girls. Like I remember being 13 and being like, Oh, I can't believe everybody's had their period and I haven't had my period yet. And like having your period sucks. <laughs> like dumbass like you don't want that and like same thing with this like you don't want to have a seizure and have to like stay home from school and have all of this, you know, go through all of this testing and whatnot. And it's also really shocking when, you know, you do see the adult come in to try to explain to the parents like what might be going on because throughout the entire film, it's, you know, a, a fully black community. Every single person at the school in the dance troupe and whatnot is black. And the woman who comes to try and be like, okay, here's what might be going on with your kids. And like, maybe it's the water, maybe it's this, is a white woman. And it is like so startling to me that, BZ doesn't have her fit until she's like put alone in the office with this woman and questioned about, you know, what's going on and what's going on with the dance troupe. And it just seems to me to be like almost like reacting to this intruder trying to quantify like what is wrong with their community. And I don't know. It's just like it, it was one of those things where you almost don't realize that there have been no non-black people in the movie until she shows up and you're kind of like, oh, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it like makes perfect sense because of course the city would send like your white social worker to talk with all the children and make sure that everything's fine and whatnot and kind of try and like quell parental concerns. And again, it just kept making me think of, you know, Flint over and over again that these parents have legitimate concerns about the health of their children and it might be the water. It might be something like in their community and they don't really have the resources to figure it out. And it's, I don't know. I think that for me, that is what ended up kind of connecting it with our other movies because I feel like these are both movies that are fiction, but are very much straddling the line between fiction and reality in that like, these are things that happen in real life. Like there are health crises in black communities and maybe you never get an answer and maybe you just have to, they just have to band together and figure it out on their own. And maybe the people responsible are never held accountable regardless of how hard people try to make that happen. And it, I don't know, it was just, it was very poignant to me to like think about Flint, think about these fictional girls going through their own issues and still come out on the other side of it as like these triumphant and happy, passionate dancers. I, I don't really have follow up to that. I think that, I think, <laughs> just think that's very well said. And it is like impossible to watch this without thinking about Flint um, and just and how they're able to. Of course, it doesn't end up actually being something in the water, but it's still it is present. It is like this intrusion of an adult and real world, and then the kids just have to. For, for the kids, like, I mean, they're kids. It's just kind of life. They just kind of have to go on with their life. And this is just, like, the reality now. Like, that's mm -hmm. part of what is also, like, kind of striking, the way that the girls in different ways adjust. It's like, well, this is just reality. Yeah. And it's experience. And, and what you, like, and how you just, in, in how, um I don't know, the ways that we kind of, like, have to move on and just account for that mm -hmm. reality which should be disturbing but like what are you going to do in this case you're a kid right and that's applicable to many other situations where you're not a kid but there's still nothing you can do and you just like have to acclimate to like this thing 
I mean, that's, I mean, not to bring it back to coronavirus again, but that's kind of where we're living right now is that everything is really fucked up, but we have had to find ways to acclimate to it. And I don't know, I think maybe that was what ended up also making this click <laughs> in a way is that it, it, it feels uncomfortable to sit and examine that kind that like subtle level of adjusting to trauma because I believe it it would be traumatic to see this happen to every girl around you and fear and know really that it would most likely happen to you as well, whether you wanted it to or not. And again, I think that that's what makes Tony's fit special is that like hers is coming from a place of acceptance and understanding and growth as opposed to like fear and distress. And man, and this is just getting into like the technical aspect, but the way that like, the, like as mentioned, there's very little music in the movie except for like mainly Tony's like, you know, lonely theme and then like the sound of the dance troupe. And then to have this song come in at the very end as Tony is having her triumphant fit, talking about, you know, do, uh, I don't have the lyric in front of me, but about like, do must we be slaves to gravity? Um, oh, it's such a beautiful song too. Yes. Uh, like this, just a total showstopper. Right. I do have the name and like the song is called Aurora by Kia Victoria, Kaya Victoria. Um, so I did make note of that, but yeah, it's a real just showstopper of a moment. And it's part of how like this movie is only 72 minutes long, but there's like this middle point and end point that are just these transcendent moments that have always stuck with me. Like there are other movies that are like good movies during that 2015 time that I watched, but like don't stick with me in the same way. And it's that moment, that it's the two big musical show-stopping moments there's the like her getting it on the bridge and the two themes coming together and then the transcended magical realist moment at the end um oh, i just i feel really good about this movie <laughs> yeah it's a it's a good film and again it's one of those things where it feels really nice to be able to have a conversation based on just 72 minutes of tight, incredible filmmaking. <laughs> and it's one of those movies that just like feels good to research too, because obviously mm -hmm. it's an independent film with limited resources, but reading about the uh, filmmaking, um, especially this interview I'll have in the notes for film comment, interviewing Homer and uh, co-screenwriters, Sheila Davis and Lisa Carroll. Um, just talking about the collaborative process, both for them writing the movie and uh, with Homer talking about the collaborative process of working with like royalty, especially, and just the cast in general about, um, I just, I think it just makes you feel good. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, oh, you the can entire make this mo beautiful movie and everyone's working together and mm -hmm. giving to it. And well, and that's like the entire movie was funded by grants uh, for, you know, people making their first or second uh, micro budget film. And the dance troupe that is the star of the movie ended up with part ownership of the film. So it really was just this very collaborative um, artistic endeavor. And I think that that in and of itself is something to celebrate. Not that all films aren't a collaborative endeavor, but just something that is so purely born out of like goodwill and working together. And I'm sure we'll talk about it with the watermelon too, the watermelon woman too, but also just underlines the importance of things like grants and extend mm -hmm. like um, extending opportunities and funding beyond the like, accepted norm or accepted canon beyond those who are just like basically like the white dudes who know the yeah. white dudes etc um and just like what beautiful art can come from even just getting a bit of a leg up and just getting yeah. a bit of opportunity that would not have been available because you just don't know like don't have like a rich parent or like mm -hmm. whatever when you make resources available, like the best artist could be sitting next to you on the subway, you know, you. and they just Thank haven't had the opportunity. Nicely <laughs> saying. I, like, I just appreciate you coming up with like more concise and tighter ways to say the things that I like stumble. <laughs> you know? And that's like, this is a total, it's not a total tangent, but it's like, that's why I get so frustrated when people say things like, oh, well, what if like you've killed the next Einstein or whatever, like... <laughs> okay, well, the next Einstein might be alive right now and might be 
in a public school that doesn't have enough funding to get textbooks and the ceiling is caving in. Like we have to provide resources for the community around us and not be constantly worried about like providing for children who exist in the hypothetical or children in faraway countries. Like we have the same problems here and we have a responsibility to, you know, the, the people around us to, support them and make sure that they have what they need to live their lives and experience their lives because surviving and living are two different things and getting the opportunity to make art and, you know, exist outside of just like getting by. Like we just have to, we have to do better and we have to make sure that that's happening. And this film is a great example of what happens when even a little bit of that is passed out. And here's where instead of continuing on with more smart things about that lovely sentiment, I just say, man, I want Anna Rose Homer to make another movie. Yeah, where is it? There was something it? set up with Natalie Portman a couple years ago, some kind of rodeo movie, but then that ended, like, I don't think it even involves Natalie Portman anymore, but just, I want more. Like, I, I just think this is a very lovely and interesting movie, and I just... It's a great debut, interesting, too. Interesting. Yeah, like, it's 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 great. I want I want more of it. Yeah. So hopefully we will see more things from her in the future. I would also love to see more, even just like dance material from Royalty High Tower. Like, also, what a great name! I just have to, I feel like we can't just like not touch on that. And totally incredible name for a yeah. child to have. <laughs> Good job, parents. Um, but yeah, I think that kind of wraps up the discussion on that. Again, it's a pretty short movie. Um, if you have, I think it's also streaming on Amazon Prime if you do not have the Criterion channel and you want to check it out and you have Amazon Prime, I highly recommend it. It's literally like an hour and some change of your life. With that, um, our next film that we are covering is The Watermelon Woman, which is written, directed, and stars Cheryl Dunier. Notably, this is the first narrative feature to be released by an out black lesbian filmmaker. Um, it is currently archived on the Criterion channel as part of their, you know, black voices collection. And the version that is on the Criterion channel is like a preserved copy uh, by um, an LGBTQ um, organization that seeks to, you know, preserve these important works. Um, but yeah, so diving into the synopsis, uh, the character in the film is also called Cheryl, and she is a clearly fictionalized version of our director, Cheryl Dunier. She is a young black lesbian who aspires to be a filmmaker. She works with her friend Tamara as a videographer and has a day job at a video store, which Tyler and I can both personally relate to. <laughs> Cheryl becomes interested in films from the 30s and 40s featuring black actresses, but is frustrated that they are often not credited. After seeing a film titled Plantation Memories, starring a captivating young woman credited only as the watermelon woman, she decides to make a documentary about her and speaks to members of the public to find out more after discovering that she is originally from Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Tamara has been attempting to set Cheryl up with a friend of her girlfriend's. This does not pan out, and Cheryl meets a flirtatious young white woman named Diana at the video store. You know, it's uh, two for one, Monday through Thursday. Really? Yeah. I'm having a hard time deciding. What do you think? Cleopatra Jones, Jason's Lyric, or our personal best? Hmm. Well, Cleopatra Jones is really fun. Why don't you do Cleopatra Jones and Carrie? I think the two go really well together. No, but Carrie, I hate Sissy SpaceX. She's all weird and pale and thin and anorexic in this movie. I kind of like my girls with meat on their bones, you know what I mean? Anyway, I just saw it. Well, um, there's always uh, some sci-fi, like Aliens, or how about uh, Repulsion with Catherine Deneuve? She goes nuts in her apartment one night. Oh, I just moved into a new apartment. I don't think I need that. Well, help yourself. It's two for one. Okay, thanks for your suggestions. You're welcome. During Cheryl's search for information on the watermelon woman, she discovers that her name was actually Faye Richards and that she was often in the company of the white film director, Martha Page. After discovering that one of her mother's friends knew Faye, her suspicion that Faye was in fact a lesbian is confirmed. She visits a disorganized lesbian history archive, which leads her to Faye's special friend of 20 years, June Walker. 
Meanwhile, again, Tamara and Cheryl almost get in trouble at work for ordering videotapes under Diana's new account. Diana plays along with the manager and invites Cheryl over to watch the movies. The two sleep together and start a relationship which Tamara heavily disapproves of. Sadly, June Walker is hospitalized before Cheryl can speak to her in person, but she does receive a letter from her describing June's relationship with Faye and how angry she still is with Martha Page. She urges Cheryl to tell their story in her film, which she does. Cheryl finishes her documentary, unfortunately having been dumped by Diana and having a falling out with Tamara. Despite these personal setbacks, she is proud of her work and states that she intends to be an out Black filmmaker and that she has a lot to say. The film ends with a timeline of Faye Richards' career in life and a note from the real Cheryl Dunier that the film is fiction because sometimes you have to create your own history. If the plot that I just described seems a little disjointed, it's because the movie is very much vignette and in a very like told in a very cinema verite way where it combines these sit-down documentary portions that Cheryl is ostensibly filming as a part of her like in-film documentary and vignettes of their actual life where they are shooting video at a wedding, working at the video store, you know, having dinner with Diana and Tamara's girlfriend, these kind of things. Um, it is amateur in a way that is really refreshing <laughs> and was really enjoyable to watch because it really felt like just watching real people sit down and talk. And yeah, I don't know. Tyler, what was your initial impression of this? Um, I mean, like all around positive. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Good it's move. It's just getting beyond any like oh wow this was like and this was released at the time and it's still relevant now and stuff like that i think the the structure is really fascinating mm -hmm. um in cheryl dunier the, the real life <laughs> writer director calls her work dunier mentories um because of how she blends like narrative storytelling and this like fictionalized documentary in what feels like a really kind of unique way like playing with form and such um i think i was also really impressed by the fact by how the movie touches on all these serious or like all these different kind of aspects of life many of which i do not have to deal with but in almost casual ways and sometimes it is underlined or spoken aloud and other times it is just the undercurrent of a certain vignette that might not even be revisited again what but like it's part of like that's part of the life and just kind of adds and like at, like even though it is like just this one-off event i think it's specifically of the cops mm -hmm. stopping cheryl um and we don't see much fallout or hear about much fallout from that but it is just like this very informative like fact of life element of it mm -hmm. um i just yeah it just it's 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 smart it's funny it might be like disjointed and such but I... it's revelatory in a yeah, way yeah there like, we are that's good i think attitude. yeah well i think for me like what i i like both of these movies but in different ways like the fits is very artistic and stylized and i think what i really liked about this movie was that it isn't so stylized it really feels like you are just being dropped into these like a, a time in this young woman's life before she achieves her dreams or whatever, where she is like working really hard towards her goals and like getting pissed off at her friends and dating around and like dealing with her identity and all of these things. And it just, because it is so clearly also based on her real life, I think that it just lends an air of realism that like, even when it feels kind of like they're reading lines of dialogue out of a, like out of a diary or off of a page, it works. And it has, again, just this, like when I say an amateur quality, I'm what I think I more mean is like a sincere quality. <laughs> like it's not somebody trying so hard to be like, okay, now I am filming a faux documentary. Now we are filming like the real scenes. Like it all fits together and slots together. And it very much feels like the project of a first time filmmaker who is making this documentary about a subject that like only she is interested in because, well, she thinks that only she is interested in it. And what it turns out is that this is actually a huge piece of her community's history. And I mean, I would be remiss not to point out that a good gay conspiracy theory is one of my all time favorite things. So having the entire crux of the film be discovering that this actress was actually a lesbian and involved with her director is like, just chef's kiss for me. Great. Love it. Incredible storytelling. 
But to that point, like Dunye in real life is like, you know, I was looking for this kind of history to make a film about and I couldn't find any of it because in real life, so many of these actresses or, you know, black people who worked on early films were not credited or were not given due credit if they were credited or were not allowed to be a part of the history of the film. And that's something that we see kind of when she goes to the, uh, what is it? Center for lesbian, the, the it's, intelligence it, and technology. Yeah. It's, it spells clit is the joke. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's run by like a hippie granola white lady who's like, uh, yeah, everything's really disorganized, but, uh, it's cause we're volunteers. And also here's this garbage box of black lesbian stuff that I'm going to dump out on a table in front of you. Like even up until now, their contributions and whatnot are still not being valued because it's just like disorganized and shoved in a box. And like, yeah, we'll get to that someday. If we ever have enough volunteers, we're busy working on this other like important history stuff that we have to, you know, get organized. And it's just, I don't know. It, it, it's heartbreaking in a way that it is still so relevant today. Like you talk about the scene where she's stopped by the cops as she's trying to get like, what is it? Covered shots for her documentary. And I just, in my heart, like felt like afraid like of what was going to happen. And in the film, it passes without incident really, other than like, they're like, okay, you got to go now. But like, we're living in a time where I don't know if like race relations have ever been as poor like in modern history as they currently are right now and it just I don't know I just when I think about this film being so poignant almost 20 years out I think about how I don't want in another 20 years to still feel like that fear like I want that to feel like a crazy thing of like a bygone era and I don't know. I, I think that it's just, I don't know. It just speaks to how like we have come so far that this is now being recognized as like an important film and an important part of like queer black canon, but that it still feels so relevant today. It feels like a separate failure on like our part <laughs> as a society. Well, and I, it's a fictional film that is meant to be parallel with reality as they create their own history, you know, but like the, I, I guess the way that it echoes reality go like run so deep. So they have to create all of these vintage photographs because like one, it's fictional, but two paralleling like the fact that she has to go to this volunteer organization that maybe or maybe doesn't have what she's looking for and it's not very well organized and then they don't even want to give it to her right and then (laughs) like in the like in the background of the making of the film they have to create all of those like all of that retro photography from scratch which is in like incredible like artistic feat but also because they could not afford to license the actual photographs from those periods of history. And so like, it's like that, that, um, that gateway to like, so even the actual history that does exist, that this is paralleling is difficult to find. And in many ways is locked away where you have to like have some kind of access, whether that be monetary or geographic to even access it. Um, which is why they have, you have to create the history so that well, people can actually see it. And it's it's a form of disenfranchisement to be cut off from your history. And it's, yeah, again, just a really poignant thing to think on, I guess. And um, the thing that I, I also really like about the story is that her own story is kind of paralleling Faye Richards is that she is, you know, dating this white woman who clearly has a little bit of like uh not a fetish necessarily but like um a desire a token yeah like a, she wants to tokenize Cheryl and mentions that she's had several black partners of like varying genders and that she was born in Jamaica and that her family was traveling around all the time and it's very clear that like she wants to be a part of this community and she is in a way fetishizing it because she idolizes it. And this is again, still something that we see today with like black fishing on Instagram and, you know, um, African-American vernacular English being something that like seeps into popular 
um, into pop culture and is appropriated. And it's something that like I'm guilty of doing, but like, it's something that we're probably all guilty of doing at this point and, you know, not respecting the history behind that or where it came from and just seeing it as like this cool and interesting thing to, you know, moonlight in basically. And for as brusque as Tamara can be throughout the film, like she has a point when she calls out that like Cheryl is maybe making a mistake by letting this woman in on her project and like kind of sticks up for her when Diana is like, Oh, I made, you know, arrangements for us to meet with this person so that we can discuss like our project. And Tamara's like, I thought it was Cheryl's project. And that's like such again, just like a thing that happens all the time, even up until today where, you know, the art, the artistry of black artists is taken and, um, like copied and (laughs) re put out under the guise of commerciality and whatnot. And it's just, I don't know. It's something that sucks. I don't really know what else to say about it. (laughs) And just the, I, and it's like, it's almost, it could be like, almost confusing but the way that she like um that reality and fiction like well reality and like the fiction that is mirror mirroring reality is so intertwined like so there's this uh moment where she where cheryl meets with this white film studies professor at a nearby college and like interviews a couple students there and it basically is just like I can't, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but it's basically like this white professor being like very dismissive and or... Um, he gives, yeah, she gives this really wild diatribe about how like, because she's Italian, she understands like black culture and that like in Italy, watermelon is a sign of like happiness and therefore black people shouldn't feel that it's racist when they're like right. stereotyped as liking watermelon. It's, Thank you for having the details, but like... I remember Part, just like sitting there in that scene and being like, this right. But right like, even more this? background on that already is like, that is an actual, like her name is Camille Paglia, uh, something like that. But it's basically like a fictionalized version of that real person. Like kind of, that person is kind of playing herself just, you know, like a fictional, more fictionalized and problematic version yeah. of herself. But just <laughs> that, that is ne- yet another aspect where it's like, fiction and reality like intertwining so much in ways that just like I, I immediately looked up that person I was just like Dang. um and that is like one of many people who are pl- like many like mm-hmm. I think New York gay like maybe not icons but figures who appear throughout the movie mm-hmm. um which is just a whole lot of stuff I do not know much about but very much in enjoyed um yeah i got value in researching and want to like spend more time on we i mean mm -hmm. we've discussed in a recent recently watched uh you watched a greg iraqi movie and we talked Mm -hmm. about getting more into like the new queer cinema movement which is is part of and like just a thing i would like to i should spend more time with and i think that that is another thing that lends to like the comfortable feeling of this movie and why it's so enjoyable to watch is that like it uh, for as much as it is like uh, an an artistic documentary kind of thing that she's trying to put together, it also is very much just a quick look into the life of a young lesbian in the nineties. And being a lesbian in the nineties was obviously very fraught. You have kind of this like weird cresting like second wave into third wave feminism movement happening you have a lot of like women's empowerment movements happening and you have kind of you know this generation taking over from like the women of the 60s and 70s who were into like the concept of like free love and making sure that birth control is available and kind of trying to shift the focus to towards more like serious topics like intersectionality and race relation and whatnot and so to kind of remember that even while all of those important things are happening, like people are just living their lives and hanging out with their friends and going on dates and figuring out how to talk to, you know, women and approach them with interest. Like, I think sometimes we forget that even while important things are happening, like people continue to go on. They continue to, yes, do super important like race related work, but they also have dinner and smoke joints and do all of that stuff. And I think that that is another 
like aspect of non-white filmmaking that is forgotten about because so often, especially on black filmmakers, there's this pressure to make like a really sweeping historical document, like a Selma or like, you know, like something like that where it's like, oh, okay, this is, you know, a biopic on a really important political black person, or this is a movie that is really about like the fear of being black. And like, you don't really get a lot of films that are just like, this is my life and I am also black and we are, you know, moving on, <laughs> like going through our stuff. And I think that getting that verite feeling is, again, sadly refreshing because this movie came out like 25 years ago at this point. And another, you know, argument that we need to be making sure that those resources are available because like, there are so many bland movies about like white people just like going about their day to day and following through their menial tasks and lives. And it's easy to see those as like important when like the perspective has been for white people for so long, but like it is definitely time for us to shift that perspective and let there be more of these kinds of just like quote unquote simple movies that are just about normal everyday life yeah and it makes um i guess like and one thing i personally am still learning is like how to appreciate those movies because so like i mean it's easy so it's like putting a lot of weight upon these movies so so it feels like there are two different ways you can approach like movies like this. One is like the broad trumpeting of like, ah, the existence of this movie is so important. Wow. The, what this movie does for the culture, like, which is true, but it also like, I, I don't know. It feels like it can further put so much weight and like responsibility upon the people making these movies where it's like, can't they just make, can't they just right. make movies too? Like why did like, it's like this, this movie existing feels so powerful, not just from like, a, like, but also from like the lesbian experience too. Like the mm -hmm. frank matter of fact, just like instance of lesbian sex in this movie. I, mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen that. No, I'm not like the most complete cinephile, but like for like, a like people who do not dive deep into like, you know, art house cinema, this movie getting new life in a way recently feels important that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I am losing myself on a tangent now. But like, so like, I, I guess. I think I understand what you're like trying. important, but also like, can movies, like, can they also exist as movies? And like Cheryl Dunier has made like 15 other independent movies, many of which have this similar Dunier mentory style. And it's like, it's kind of like, look, well, it's great that this movie is getting a second life now, but like, all, what about all these other movies she's made and such? Um, mm -hmm. do you, I, I think I wound myself in circles a bit there, but. Um, well, I mean, the point, I, I understand what you're trying to say is like, there is a lot of pressure on, you know, non-white creators to be important, capital I, or right. to get it right. Like, so that they can then continue to represent themselves and their culture. And like somebody as like somebody as prolific as Dunye who has worked on so many different television series who had her own like intense output in like the late 80s and early 90s that she was just like putting out these movies on her own while she was in grad school and all of this other stuff like she's a part of like our fabric you know in a lot of ways that you wouldn't really realize and i think that <sighs> you want to like sing the praises of those people more and you want to make sure that they're getting the recognition that they deserve. And like, I think that cinema has kind of wound itself into its own circle in that like to be considered made or, you know, being given an opportunity, you almost like you have to get like a Marvel movie or a star Wars or like a big franchise movie. And there's not as much importance placed on just like getting to make the projects that you're interested in or that you're passionate about. And I think that, once we are able to stop centering like career achievements on being brought into the mega oligarch Disney's grasp, <laughs> we will be able to maybe, you know, have a greater cultural appreciation and understanding of like this level of filmmaking. And I think that 
plays into like, you know, stuff that we've talked about a lot before where it's like, you know, the mid-level movie disappearing and wanting to have these things that aren't like part of a universe, like just to have movies about people doing things and trying to shift the culture so that movies about people doing things are not just about white people doing things or straight people doing things and not just having all of those movies be dumped on Netflix or whatever other streaming service because they're seen as less important. And like now I transition transition into like referencing back what I've mentioned briefly during the fits about the importance of just like opportunity and such. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, uh, Dunier like did all these independent films but um, like like many independent filmmakers who like maybe weren't able to make films as much um, she's been very prolific in television these past couple of years and I watched uh, an interview with her that's included in the notes but part of that is uh, Ava DuVernay's like who has had like you know the big Disney movies mm-hmm. um, using like Queen Sugar especially as a project where like by female filmmakers get to like you know direct television and get credits and um Dunier told a story about how she met DuVernay at a screening of 13th in I, I believe it was New York but like a screening of 13th they connected there that got her the directorial job on Queen Sugar which has now led to her directing episodes on like many big television series like uh which I have listed here like uh Dear White People The Shy Claws she has um she directed an uh, episode of the current HBO show du jour, Lovecraft Country. Um, and she had another show picked up by own called Delilah, where she'll be directing the pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if this is still happening, but like she was in, she was working with Lionsgate in 2018 to write and direct an adaptation of The Wonder of All Things. Um, and just, uh and she talks more about that like in various interviews but just like the opportunities like how studios don't even look at independent filmmaking unless like you're a white man with connections to like film festivals it's paraphrasing of one of her quotes but it's pretty close um just i know it's like it's it, it almost feels like too easy and like brownie like to talk about the importance of opportunity but like mm-hmm. It's also still like drawing those direct lines still yeah. feels impactful. Well, and it starts with like it starts with this, with making space for it in your life. It starts with taking the time out of your day to search and find art by people who don't look like you or might have different experiences than you. And like again, I'm not under the impression that we have any sort of large platform, but like we have something and we have some people who listen to this. And I think that like it's important to make sure that like we are using the privilege that we have to obviously we don't have the privilege to provide opportunity but to at least word of mouth talk about these things and make sure that you know we're not playing into the same um issue of just constantly going in circles around like white people movies about white people and like i think that it is a good challenge to take on for yourself to make sure that like you are diversifying your own artistic interests and to seek out experiences that don't match up with your own and to try and understand or empathize with people who have lived different lives than you. And that is like the best thing about film is that we have the ability to do that. And we so often are interested to see like aliens and all this other like crazy shit. And it's like, you can just watch an indie movie about like a young Latina woman or something like, you know, like you can have those experiences with any size of movie with any type of story and like we just we have a responsibility to do that and to you know spin that as a type of artistic activism of like demanding that those stories be given the same space and that they are given the respect that they deserve and without prompting too just as a part of your like natural yeah I don't know, progression. Um, I mean, like, it, it's good when current events spurs, like, film, mm-hmm. or film struck criterion to, like, make these movies available. But, like, mm-hmm. so it's good to spotlight those things when societal yeah. circumstances do not reach such a fever point where it's, like, almost demanded. Like, it would yep. be, like, blind of you, or, like, 
irresponsible not to it was kind of irresponsible to not be doing that already to some extent Mm -hmm. and i think that that yeah that's a a definitely an even more important takeaway is that it's an ongoing process and not just a a, an instagram trend or whatnot like it's something that like especially us as like white people we are constantly unlearning a millennia of garbage that has benefited us in many ways and if the smallest act that you can do right now is to watch a movie and talk about it, great. <laughs> if you can give money to causes that deserve it, also great. Like if you are able to protest or get out there and do, you know, those kinds of things or vote in your local elections, like there are so many small ways to build up to creating actual change and like the impetus for that has to come from the people who hold the power and the privilege instead of just like paying lip service and posting hashtags and whatnot. Like we just, we have a responsibility to keep putting in the work, I guess is the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, I mentioned this to you, but retroactively, cause this, I was, I, I don't think I, I was, I, I was not, I do not want to cast aspersions upon you. And especially since it was more your idea, it was all your idea. Um, but like, I'm glad we do, that this year long journey we're going on is for the Criterion channel and not mm-hmm. just the Criterion collection. Um, because of course, like that was recently in the news, like how, how few black filmmakers are in the Criterion collection. And just by doing the Criterion channel, it gives us a lot more mm-hmm. variety to choose from in many different ways. But yeah. I, in, in this case specifically. <laughs> and and to that point, I do think it, it it is fair to point out that like the actual physical releases of the Criterion Collection are bound to like copyright laws and stuff like that. And I think that that is what makes the channel special is that they go out of their way to include important works that are not necessarily on their physical release slate yet. I think that obviously they could stand to do better in trying to acquire, you know, works by black artists and I'm sure that that is something that's being discussed. I wish that I had a a bird's eye view into like criterion business dealings, but um, there are a lot of like interesting films on the Criterion channel that are not necessarily in the actual physical collection. And it's definitely worth scrolling through and seeing what you can find, even if you think that like it might not necessarily match up with your idea of a Criterion movie. And I mean, like the the, the Fitz and the Watermelon movie, or the wa- yeah. the, the Watermelon, watermelon. Woman <laughs> <laughs> movies, like pretty short movies and breezy watches, and both mm-hmm. have like a good amount of humor in them. Um, just like very enjoyable sits, you know, not just uh, stuffy art. Yeah, <laughs> much as yeah. I love a, a, a lengthy homework movie. Um, yeah, I could watch four fits in the time it takes to watch like one Midsummer. Well, and it's also great in that, like, we talk about how the Criterion Project has given us a chance to kind of flex, like, the academic leanings of our podcast that we had a little bit more of, like, when we first started doing it. But this is also another interesting way to, like, flex that academia muscle is to make sure that, like, you're taking in new classes, (laughs) like, different things and not just, like, stuffy – well, not stuffy – not just, um, like, tense, suffering, white – art <laughs> like, i mean i love to suffer but like i need a, a break from the suffering too. exactly and i think that during this time we really we all need a break from that so i don't know at the end of the day these are two great movies that you can start that journey with um i think that kind of wraps everything up do you have any final points that you want to make about either of these just that um it's good that you picked up i think i feel your our double feature for next month is a real light-hearted romp right <laughs> I'm so sorry, speaking you guys. Of, uh... <laughs> yeah, speaking of how not every movie has to be a difficult thing to watch, uh, the two movies that I have selected for next month's double feature are super difficult to watch. Uh, we will be covering David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me and Agnes Varda's Vagabond. So, yeah. That's your homework. Uh, you can get neither. started on that. I watched Fire Walk With Me for the first time yesterday, and wow we. Is that a time? You never told me. How's the fire walking? Like, mm, there is no fire walking. Spoiler. What the f- 
<laughs> um, great. I, I love, we'll get into it obviously, but so we'll save that for next time. Um, in the meantime, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LTRFI pod. We use those sometimes. Uh, you can always email us at LTRFI pod at gmail.com. If you are interested in being a guest on the show and you want to talk about some Criterion movies, please hit us up. We are definitely not opposed to having guests on these episodes. Um, oh, uh, we have a Patreon. <laughs> so if you would like to give us money to watch movies, uh, you can subscribe to that for as low as $1 at patreon.com slash pod. And I believe that those, that's all of the things that we need to plug. You can also, oh, you can also rate, review, and subscribe on your app of choice uh, if you feel like doing that. Um, yeah, uh, until next time, keep on keeping on. Stay safe and healthy. Um, Happy maybe Halloween. Fine. Yeah, it's almost Halloween, Halloween time. Now. Yeah, Halloween is now. Um, it was 65 degrees today and I could finally turn off my air conditioning for the first time in like a month and open my windows. So I'm enjoying that. I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt that is a turtleneck and God, do I feel alive? Love, love <laughs> to walk outside when it's 75 degrees and be like, is that a, is that a chill in, a the, chill air? in the air? I better pumpkin? get the sweaters out. The pumpkin might coffee? even get down to 72. <laughs> so yeah, uh, the next time we see you or see you, the next time you hear us, <laughs> it will be fully fall. Uh, we will have a recently watched episode next month. Sorry for our extended break. Um, and like I said, the aforementioned Criterion double feature. And we are working on some extra stuff for Halloween that we hope to record in advance because I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm getting married on Halloween. So that's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. And um, you can go to the Patreon. Uh, I've added a tier where if we hit our goal, we are criminally liable uh, if we do not hit our recently watched goals every month. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can sue you me can, into oblivion. You can actually sue us. Yes. Um, please don't do that. <laughs> We're busy and it's a pandemic. Okay. Um, but yeah. So until next time, keep on keeping on. Um, I didn't think of a witty thing to end on. So I thought happy Halloween was good, but as always, happy Halloween. Going. Yeah. <laughs> All right. For real. Happy Halloween and goodbye.